When was the first time you realized that being a girl was a liability? For me, it was early in childhood, hearing and internalizing statements that ended with, like a girl. You run like a girl. You need to sit like a girl. Stop crying. You're acting like a little girl. Growing up, my dad always called the shots in every part of our lives. When my mom and dad got married, he told her, you can have an opinion, but if that opinion is different than mine, mine wins. In that environment, I truly believe that men were supposed to be in charge. I looked up to the men in my life, including my dad, particularly the way they seemed to be able to control their emotions. This is something that was and is very difficult for me. And for a long time, being publicly emotional was one of my shame triggers. I'd feel self-conscious about my weight. I would have an emotional response that other people would see. I'd feel shame and then I'd overeat. And then I'd repeat that cycle all over again. My sister and I were the first generation to go to college. I attended school five hours away from my home where my parents were going through a divorce. The separation was a shock to me, in part because my parents took great pains to hide the fact that they were unhappy until my sister and I had moved out. Now I was attending school while worrying myself sick about my mom, who had never used a computer before in her life and was now trying to figure out how to carve out an independent life for herself away from my dad. The experience left me determined to create an independent life for myself by getting my degree. But while I was at college, something happened that wasn't part of my plan. I started taking women's studies classes. This was the 90s, and the idea of studying the experiences and accomplishments of women as a group was completely alien to me. I had never heard of women having a louder voice than men or making waves or leading protests. It was a transformational experience for me. That's not to say that I took a handful of classes and suddenly became myself completely unabound by the gender dynamics that I had grown up with. My first job was in sales and it had a very strict gender split, mostly men in management and mostly younger women like myself in sales. My ambition was to join leadership, but I went about using the only tools I thought were available to me, demurring to the men in leadership, staying late to help, always saying yes, but never offering my opinion. Not surprisingly, these strategies led to me being valued as a hard worker, but ultimately overlooked as a potential leader. It took me another decade and a lot more experience to finally be able to strike out on my own and trust myself as a leader. Before I started my business, almost all my bosses were men. In part, being an entrepreneur is a reflection of me not wanting to be controlled by a man. Being a woman comes with so many rules and regulations on how we can behave, how loud we can be, how much space we can take up. It's actually not that surprising that some people want to create rules around who gets to call themselves a woman in the first place. I'm Amy Porterfield, and this is Talking Body. (music) 
trans women are women, but just like the diversity of lived experiences that we've explored on the show, trans women often face a difficult set of rules and challenges when it comes to identifying as a woman in public spaces. In preparing for this episode, some of the statistics we pulled were staggering in their bleakness. Pulling from GLAD's report on discrimination faced by transgender people, a recent study found that transgender people in America are nearly four times more likely to have a household income under $10,000 per year than the population as a whole. This is true despite the fact that 87% of transgender people have completed at least some college and 47% have obtained a college or graduate degree, rates that are much higher than those for the general population. The human rights campaign began tracking fatal violence against transgender people beginning in 2013, tying the increased risk of violence directly to the discrimination trans people face at home and in public. By their measure, Trans women of color are disproportionately affected by this epidemic. Of course, like we talked about in the last episode, no one wants to be defined solely by a set of statistics. The breadth of experiences that all women face cannot be entirely captured by examining only numbers on a spreadsheet. While those numbers, reflections of lives lost and pain suffered, should be known, and we as human beings should actively work to lessen them, I feel it is equally important that we celebrate the brilliant lives, successes, and breakthroughs for trans women in the last several years. The 2020 elections brought huge wins for trans people across the country. Arkansas, California, Colorado, Delaware, Illinois, Kansas, New Hampshire, and Vermont all elected or re-elected openly trans officials. Stephanie Byers beat her opponent in Wichita, Kansas, to become the first openly trans state senator of color. Byers, a first-time politician, recalled her experiences on the campaign trail, which many in her close circle feared would be hostile to her identity. In an interview for NPR, Byers explained, quote, The only comments that came up were, I don't care about her gender. What I care about is how she will decide things that will help me and my family. Although it feels like a lifetime ago, it was actually only 2015 when Caitlyn Jenner graced the cover of Vanity Fair, announcing her transition, name, and pronouns. Revisiting the article in 2021, a few details that felt revolutionary then, in the space of six years, now stick out as passe. The frequent use of Caitlin's dead name in the article, for example. It's common courtesy not to mention a trans person's former name, as it's often used by people who refuse to acknowledge their identity in order to hurt or provoke them. In trying to find more examples of positive representations of trans women in the media, I was often confronted with these sorts of one-step-forward, one-step-back stories. In 2014, Laverne Cox was the first openly transgender actor to be nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for her role as fan favorite Sophia Bursette on Orange is the New Black. That same year, she appeared on Good Morning America with Katie Couric, who referred to trans people as transgenders, 
and asked invasive questions about her guest genitalia on daytime TV. Cox, in what could be a masterclass on remaining cool under pressure, pivots the conversation away from her private parts and toward the issues that she was there to discuss, including the murder of Islan Nettles, a trans woman who was beaten to death on a city street in 2013. The incident, which is painful to watch, reminds me that there are all kinds of body policing going on out there, from the size of our clothes to what may or may not be underneath them. In speaking to women for this podcast, we asked them how their gender identity had influenced their decisions or perception throughout the course of their lives. Did they believe it when they were told they couldn't do something because it wasn't for girls? Did they feel free to play with their gender representation as a form of self-expression, or did they fear being seen as too masculine? Here's what they had to say. Um, And so I think I I struggle a lot with, um, you know, also like battling like my own mental image of like, well, but I'm a girl, so I should dress like a girl and I should act like a girl and I should be a girl. And then it's like, but I also like... You know, it's so ridiculous that so many things are like red taped with gender, like that this is for boys and this is for girl and there should be no overlap in those things. Um, And I think that that too has created like a weird identity crisis, like since I was little of like liking masculine and feminine things has has created like this weird where I'm like, well, but now I feel like I'm in the middle. So like, what do I do with that? I think for me at a basic level, being female in the business world and owning my own business, I have felt a need to sort of stand a little taller, like appear a little stronger. And I don't want, in in an effort to not appear to be weak or um, not as knowledgeable, not as powerful as a male counterpart who was also a business owner. I've definitely felt a huge pressure throughout my life to present in a more female way to be accepted. I remember at certain points, like a couple times in university and a couple times in my early 20s, I would have this like, okay, I'm going to change my whole wardrobe. I'm going to go out and buy some more feminine clothes. I'm going to learn how to do my makeup better or differently. And I'm going to, I'm going to give myself a makeover. And it was kind of like those British reality shows where they make people who have individual looks look like everybody else and then after a couple of weeks they go back and they've gone back to how they actually feel comfortable and they actually want to dress and present themselves and that's always happened to me too it's like after a couple of weeks I think well I don't actually feel like myself in these clothes I'm just gonna put on a pair of jeans and, and some trainers and that's because that's what I want to wear when I was growing up I grew up in a church or even in school there was more restrictions for women than there were for guys I was always more of a tomboy and then the older you get you kind of have that thing of like oh maybe I should be more feminine in my expression but it's something that really doesn't come naturally to me. Expression wise um, I, I, I like being more of a tomboy however if I could <laughs> I probably would make some some adjustments but I just can't bring myself to do that um, except because I think women are seen as weak um but in general i'm comfortable however i think it could have a bit more of a feminine touch to it Uh, i had occasions where i was uh, told to dress differently at at work but i'm not sure if that had to do with being a woman they probably wouldn't have told a man i don't think so 
I never thought about it that way. I just got annoyed that they would actually, you know, tell me to dress differently when I'm dressed decently. In my early 20s, I had a pixie haircut most of those years, and I dressed pretty boyish to sort of match the hairstyle. I think at some point I thought, I need to outgrow this and grow my hair longer and uh, look a little more feminine, but not necessarily because of men. I don't know. Why did I do that? <laughs> I know when Pete, when I was growing up and people recognized that it was a sign male at birth and I was presenting more femininely, that was some of the most intense policing I ever had in my life. But at the same time, when I'm presenting more masculinely, I have trans people telling me that I'm not a real trans woman, that I'm not a real woman at all. A few days ago, I sat down with author and activist Eli Ehrlich whose long list of career achievements at such a young age, she turns 26 this year, are the kind that make you feel suddenly self-conscious of your own mortality. And then you talk to her and she's so sweet that you immediately feel bad for even thinking that way. Eli's currently pursuing a PhD in feminism studies at UC Santa Cruz, but her journey to activism started much earlier when she was in high school. Here's Eli again. All right, Eli, are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Eli, thanks so much for being here. I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. And I want to just kind of start at the very top. Can you give my listeners who may not yet be familiar with you an overview of your story and the work that you do now? Well, that's a long, that's a lot. (laughs) Speaking of starting over. Well, I wear a lot of hats. I am a trans woman. I'm a PhD candidate. I am the co-founder of the organization Trans Student Educational Resources. I do advocacy through media, artwork, and all sorts of platforms. I came out as trans when I was eight years old in a really rural community and ever since have really been pivoting my life towards helping other people like myself. I obviously experienced a lot of bullying about my body, about who I am, about my identity, and really used that as a springboard to get involved in activism. When I was 16, I co-founded Trans Student Educational Resources, which is the only national organization led by young trans people and started to speak in the public spotlight about experiences as a young trans person. Now, somehow that was almost a decade ago, which is completely wild to me. And since then I've focused on um, writing about trans experiences and um, really getting to the nitty gritty about what it means to be trans and what it means to be a woman in this decade, century, millennia, whatever you want to call it. (laughs) You know, on this show, we talk a lot about how women feel in their body. And I'm curious, do you feel confidence, confident in your appearance? And was that a journey for you to feel however you feel today? That is such a good question because there's a lot of policing inside and outside of the queer and trans communities. I know that as a trans woman, people expect me to be super feminine and well, 
oftentimes straight and that's just not who I am and it took years to come to that because I know when I came out I actually didn't even have the word trans never mind um the concept of gender identity and gender expression being two different things so I was frankly confused for a while you know it's funny people are always telling trans kids they're confused about their genders but in reality I was more confused about how much of my gender I could explore which in fact was a lot (laughs) so I often talk about how being a part-time but trans woman is really oftentimes a big struggle inside and outside of the community Um, sometimes there's this internal policing that don't just face in the trans community, actually face it as women in the workplace, as, um, as really any oppressed group in how we present ourselves. And oftentimes being gender nonconforming is a, is a big hard task to perform because of how it's seen as disrespectful or not, um, conforming to norms that we're supposed to. I can't even imagine. It makes perfect sense when you say it that way. And that has me thinking about another question that I've been wanting to ask you. And that is, do you feel that society has a different set of standards for women or people with a feminine presentation than they do for men or people who maybe present more masculine? This is such a complicated question because in the queer and trans community, we often use this term woman and femmes, which thank God has kind of fallen out of um, favor, um, at least in the past few years. There's a lot of complicated history with that term because, for example, feminine women may have certain privileges over more masculine women, while feminine men are going to be very, very victimized. I know when Pete, when I was growing up and people recognized that it was assigned male at birth and I was presenting more femininely, that was some of the most intense policing I ever had in my life. But at the same time, when I'm presenting more masculinely, I have trans people telling me that I'm not a real trans woman, that I'm not a real woman at all, and that I should just go back to presenting more feminine. That was, that was definitely a struggle. So there's a lot of complicated things going on between gender, sexuality, and gender presentation. You know, I had read about some rumors in the past that uh, people were saying that you were detransitioning. In part, it seems because some people feel that your gender presentation isn't always feminine enough, like you were saying, to s- correspond to their vision of what a woman looks like. So how do you respond to that kind of body policing? It seems crazy that you'd have to deal with that. But yeah, where does your thoughts there? Well, I'm more trans than ever and getting more trans by the day. That's my <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Historically, I mean, historically speaking, trans people are pathologized in such bizarre ways. Like the more masculine a trans woman is, the less that we're considered women, um, not just outside of the community, but also inside of it. And interestingly, in psychiatry too, um, trans women had to conform to these norms and if we didn't, then we might not be able to access medical care. It was really wild and still is in some places. In terms of detransition, I see this so often um, coming from anti-trans websites saying, look, this person's now masculine. Obviously, they're a man. And oh, and they always use they them pronouns for me when they want to dismiss me. 
And so they're trying to use me as this scapegoat saying, look, we shouldn't allow trans kids to transition because this person regretted it, which I don't at all. On this show, we've talked to women from all walks of life about the pressures that they experience when it comes to our bodies. And there are so many voices telling us that we need to look a certain way or what we should even eat and different things like that. So how do you create a safe space in your mind for your body image? Wow, that is a great question. I mean, frankly, I still struggle with my body image sometimes. Do you? I definitely do. I um, I mean, I like engage in this influencer sphere and there's still a lot of body image issues that come into it, just like any other public facing, um, any public facing work of any sort. I know that there's a lot of pressure to be thin, to be, well, I am blonde now, but that's a nail. (laughs) (laughs) And um, just conform to all of these norms that cisgender people put out for us. I definitely got, I mean, fewer gigs working on modeling or public-facing advocacy when I started to get more butch. I know that um, when I actually shaved part of my head, uh, queer and trans organizations stopped using me in ads because they thought it would be too threatening to cisgender people when I was visibly queer versus um, appearing like a cisgender straight woman. What has, what the transition that you made where let's say you to some people looked more cis than you do now, what changed over time? Did you just want to feel and look different or did something happen? Like what was that about? Well, I lived in LA for four years, so that was definitely a thing. <laughs> that will do it for you, for sure. Um, well, you should have every right to, I mean, women want to change the way we do our hair or what we wear, all of that. But so it's almost like rude for me to ask this question, like, why do you look different now? But I'm curious because oh, so many people made such a big deal of it for you. Absolutely. And frankly, it shouldn't have been such a big deal, but it was right. Even cutting my hair, like, frankly, I just about a few months ago, I wanted to since I was 16. And so it took nine years for me to finally get up the nerve to do it. It's really frustrating on some levels, but very liberating on others. And frankly, I was pretty scared that I would lose a lot of opportunities by simply cutting my hair as a trans woman, because it's obviously this, like, huge symbol of femininity, which, frankly, it shouldn't be. And so... We are, I mean, personally, I'm adjusting to these times where it's more socially acceptable to have short hair. And at the same time, I have noticed there is a certain draw in the trans community to, well, more feminine trans women, more masculine trans men, because a lot of people are just trying to prove that we're normal. And well, I'll I'll face it, I'm not normal in any way, nor do I want to (laughs) be. Amen. I love that you say that. Now, I know a lot of your activism is in the educational space, safeguarding and creating resources for trans kids in school. So did this passion start while you were in school? And can you talk about this? Like, how did this focus come about for you? Absolutely. So I co-founded TSER when I was 16 with another 16-year-old trans girl. No adults were involved in that creation, which I'm very proud of. Right. Trans adults weren't advocating for us. And 
at least as much as they could have. And almost no cisgender people were, certainly not in my community. So we realized we had to do this ourselves. And so the organization started really focusing in on policy and involving other trans kids in fixing policies at their school. And even after that, we realized we wanted something more long-term and sustainable. So we really branched out to more media work and especially training young trans people how to be effective organizers. Or as the right likes to put it, we're indoctrinating youth with our trans agenda, which I mean, yeah, sure, sure, we were um, in all of the best ways. Yes, so true. So good. I mean, it's such great work. And I'm curious, how do you think the pressure to conform to specific body types or standards of beauty in general affects young trans girls? And how do we create a safer space for gender identity exploration? Wow, that is such a strong, that's a very long um Yes, it's, it's a big question. <laughs> it's a very big question. That yeah. question is huge. I could write a book about it, but I'll leave it at making sure that we're not body policing students. I remember when I was in high school, there was this group of um, skinheads that would um, cough whenever I walked by them. They would tell me, put on shorts, boy, and, um, or excuse me, put on pants, boy. Um, because I was wearing shorts that they deemed too short. Actually, sometimes my shorts were so short, the school administration would um, put me in this really ugly, big, bright yellow t-shirt that they called Big Bird. Um, They kind of publicly shamed me for wearing clothes that were too short. We did it for a few other girls, but they used it the most on me, which I'm kind of proud of, but on the other, nobody should have to go through that. That was kind of ridiculous. Ugh, I can't even imagine, but every, when you talk about being so young and, uh, starting this organization, when you were a teenager, no adults around to, to do that for you or with you. And you're proud of that. All I think about is this word brave. Do you consider yourself brave? Did it feel like you were being brave? Like, what did it feel like in that moment when you were doing this? Because even so wait, how old are you now? You must be so very young, 25. Okay. I was like, you have to be still so very young. So uh, with that, did you say, wow, I'm so brave. Like, what were you thinking? I was thinking, wow, I'm so angry. Oh yes. (laughs) There, I mean, by the time I realized that being forced to use a gender neutral restroom because of my gender identity, because of, um, what the doctor said when I was born, Um, I realized that was mistreatment and it took me a while to realize, wait, this isn't fair. So no, it wasn't bravery. It was self-determination. It was uh, self-sustenance. It was doing what I needed to do to protect not only myself, but other students at my school who might face the same issues in the future. So this is really something I like to emphasize is that teenagers and k-12 students have agency to make their own decisions they can be their own advocates for something like dress code policies why not involve students in it we ultimately know what's best for our own bodies 
Yes. I, I mean, it, I'm sure most people look at that and think of it so brave, but I love that you voiced, no, I was angry as angry. And this is, this is what it turned into. I think that's powerful for sure. Anger is a very powerful emotion. Right. Um, I'm all for people who use that to motivate them to, um, to get more involved in activism. And frankly, I was, God, I was so pissed off all the time for years. I bet. Um, and, and rightly so. So look what it's, look what it's done in terms of the impact you've been able to make. So I agree. It's, it's a powerful way to move things forward for sure. Now, something I love about your social media is that it celebrates the large and small joys of your lived experience as a trans person with the hashtag trans joy challenge. So my question to you is, is joy something that you feel is lacking in media representations of trans people? And what can we do to make that representation more equitable. There's this author, Julia Serrano, who writes about the two types of trans representation that we've seen in her book, Whipping Girl, which I will say was published uh, quite a few years ago. So it's a little bit dated now, but we're still seeing it quite a bit. There's the, what she calls the deceptive transsexual and the pathetic transsexual. And that's all that we ever saw. There was this um, like trickster trans woman who would um, trick men into sleeping with her. And then there's the pathetic trans person who might be a corpse, which was one of the most common representations that we saw for many years, or would just have nothing going on in their life. And thankfully, now we're seeing this break out of the molds and actually showing trans people who are happy. I recently watched um, Star Trek Discovery, which yeah. actually has multiple trans people in it, which is really wonderful. Never seen that before, but actually like trans people in relationship with other trans people, their gender is not in question. They're um, engaging with each other and they're happy with each other. And I, frankly, when I saw that, I realized, oh wait, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. No. So that option now, but I think in terms of representing trans people in media, it's so important to show us being happy, engaging in everyday life, also protesting and fighting for ourselves in ways that, well, doesn't make us miserable, but actually shows us having our own agency. Yes, for sure. For those of you listening, definitely check out the hashtag. So it's hashtag trans joy challenge. That's right. Right. Yes, that's it. And okay. I'm, I've been sending out free pizzas to people who are using it too, just <laughs> showing trans people who like um, want to, and really want to demonstrate that like we're not sad and angry all the time. Now, sadness and anger, perfectly valid emotions, but we do have a broader range than that, despite popular belief. <laughs> Yes, for sure. For sure. Now, one of the core questions we're exploring on this podcast is, can I love myself if I want to change myself? So for me, I've battled my weight all my life. I've struggled with body image in that respect. So I want to, in the simplest forms, I want to lose weight, but I still want to love myself during the process. And can those two really go together? And so my question for you, and I imagine you might have a unique perspective on this question, but what do you think of when I say, can you love yourself and still want to change yourself? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm finishing my doctorate right now. And so I'm just like, let's unpack everything. Let's unpack like every word in that sentence. But I think a shorter answer than really going into the nitty gritty of each of those is 
there was a French philosopher, Michel Foucault, who I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, during his final years of life, um, when he was actually dying from AIDS in the 1980s, he wrote about self-care in not really the sense that we use today, like buying some bath bombs or getting some um, like Thousand Island dressing French fries, which I also absolutely recommend with delicious. <laughs> but care of the self as really developing yourself and unpacking each of your each of your feelings each of your responsibilities each of your ideations or knowledges that makes it so you are taking care of yourself in a way that helps you grow rather than conform to the society that you're put in now while he was writing this like he was absolutely talking about himself being a twink which is wonderful um, and I think that actually helps us think about it in this 21st century mode where we should unpack like why do folks want to lose weight? Is it about health? Is it about society? Is it about body image? And I mean, the same was the same thing for me as a trans woman. Um, why did I want to be feminine for all of those years? And frankly, it wasn't this this innate ideation that I wanted to present femininely by some like hormone imbalance or brain molecule. But in, in reality, it was pressure from society. So taking this into account and really deeply thinking about why we want to look the way we want to look is so important. So I think that this um, this learning process and the self-exploration process alongside achieving those goals that you might want to achieve is so crucial to really feeling whole with oneself. Yes. So beautifully said. I love that. Now, I think there might be some listeners out there who believe they don't know any trans or gender non-conforming people and, but who hear your story and they hear about your activism and they want to be better and more compassionate allies. So what would you say to them and what should their first step be? First of all, they already have met trans people before. I, I mean, there's a lot of different estimates of how many trans people are out there. It's likely between somewhere between one and 200 and one and 100 people, which is actually quite a few. There are millions of trans people. Many of us are out. I mean, we're, we don't have trans tattooed on our forehead. Sometimes I want to, but not yet. I'm waiting. (laughs) They've already met trans people. We... I don't want to say we're just like everybody else because we have this amazing life experience of often transition or exploration of our gender identity. But the fact is you can't know if someone is trans or not just by looking at them. So first of all, meeting trans people is a great way to get more involved helping trans folks. And along with that, I always recommend donating to trans-led organizations that's the number one way to help trans people, getting trans folks paid and getting our messages out there. Along with that, they can also um, share things like fundraisers for trans people, helping um, distribute resources to trans folks, and also helping expand our economic safety net systems and universal healthcare systems. Trans issues really are issues for everyone when you think about it. 
there's an enormous number of trans people who are living in poverty right now. So increasing our economic safety nets is actually going to help everybody along with trans people who are some of the most impacted by economic disparities. Yes, so many good ways to support. I'm so glad you you pointed out that they've probably already met some trans people. So I think that's important for us to remember as well. Eli, I cannot thank you enough for being on this show. You have put a different perspective into all of our minds and opened our minds. So I appreciate it so very much. Thank you for having me. Throughout the course of the show, I found myself re-examining many of my own preconceived notions how we perceive our bodies, how we nip, tuck, and prod, and cast aspersions about the quality of the one body we have been given to inhabit. Though growing up, I had to learn in my own way what it meant to be a woman, the societal, the sexual, the physical implications of that. I'm not sure that I ever found myself considering what it might have been like to live in a body that I did not recognize as me. I'd like to take a moment to replay a memory for you from a time when I was young and first living by myself. I had a landlord whom I viewed as grumpy, stiff, and largely unfriendly. We occupied the same space, saw each other in passing, and though I found her demeanor unwelcoming, my mother taught me to treat everyone with kindness, so I did. With time, I came to learn that she was getting a divorce from her wife, and in doing so, for the first time, she felt that she had the freedom to dress and express her gender identity to the world in the way that she had always been on the inside. With a huge smile, she told me her pronouns, her name, Ellen, and it was like I was seeing her for the first time for who she truly was. She started to warm up to me then, inviting me over to chat and asking if I'd attend the opera with her. Of course, we went together. For all these years, she'd felt like she had to present in a way that was not in line with who she was. And I had to face within myself that I had never experienced that. I had never experienced the weight in the stress of not being seen as who I was because I, while policing my body in my own ways, hadn't had my gender identity questioned or scrutinized. It crystallized something for me that I feel is deeply important. Everyone deserves to be seen and respected as their authentic selves. When we put up these barriers to entry to be seen as women, we create this entirely separate and toxic cycle of judging and evaluating women's bodies for the sake of nothing. We allow others' perceptions to dictate and rule what it means to be a woman in the world, what that looks like, what that means for careers, family structures, relationships, and in doing so, we are creating a box in which everything should fit, and if it doesn't, it is wrong. When the reality is a so-called real woman is whatever she wants to be. And I want to have a moment of pure and total vulnerability with you here for a moment. I get nervous when I talk about these things. I want to be sure that I'm not hurting anyone, that I'm not misspeaking, misgendering, or speaking from a place of ignorance. However, I also recognize that 
I am a woman with a platform who can help facilitate the conversations that have long gone unspoken. I encourage you all, listeners, to get uncomfortable. Face the realities of the definitions that we have created for ourselves and for women and challenge them. A big theme of this podcast has been intersectionality because I believe that while we may not all go through the same thing, what hurts one of us hurts all of us. So in the days and weeks to come after you've listened to this episode, I want to invite you to re-examine what like a girl means to you. I fight like a girl. I lead like a girl. I love and support like a girl. And when I feel too big or too emotional or too bossy, I take a page from my friend Amy Purdy and I think the opposite. I like that I take up space because I am unignorable. I get emotional because I am brave enough to care. And I am bossy because I've worked hard to become a freaking boss. What do you do like a girl? I hope you let us know in reviews or by sending a message through social media. Seriously, so many of you have reached out on Instagram and through the website, and I want you to know that I read and cherish them all. If this show has touched your heart or made you think differently about the rules around your body, even if it's made you mad at times, I hope you'll pick one woman in your life, call her up, and share the episode with her. Until next time. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% chance production.